Welcome to episode number 19 of the Circles Off podcast. I'm Rob Pizzola, joined by Johnny from Betstamp. And this week, we're going to welcome in a special guest. Um, This is the first time I think I've chatted with him um, outside of the Twitterverse, uh, but professional sports better Eddie Walls will now join us on Circles Off. Eddie, how are things going? Pretty good, you? I'm doing well, trying to enjoy the summer. Um, for me personally, NHL season went late this year, so I, I have an abbreviated summer before I have to start grinding on football again. So just spending the next couple of weeks uh, golfing. How are, how are things with you? Yeah, pretty good. I'm um, plugging away at the notebook uh, that I do every single summer, and I'm almost there. Um, it's been a long process, so I'm definitely looking forward to August. I take off the first two weeks of August every year, so I need it this year probably a little more than most. All right, Eddie. Uh, for those that d- don't know your background, I actually don't technically know your background other than that you've been a professional sports better for, for several years. Um, why don't you tell people a little bit about yourself, what you do, um, how you bet, how you got into betting. I mean, it's a very open-ended question, but just a little bit of background as to who Eddie Walls is. So I started off as a poker player uh, 22 years ago, playing in a really small game. Got introduced to a local underground poker room. Um, Ended up going bust several times in that poker room before I finally started managing that poker room uh, for three or four years. Uh, Created a large bankroll for myself but ran into a lot of problems along the way. Um, Went out to California, tried making it as a pro out in commerce, uh, Las Vegas, played at the World Series of Poker every year. And 2010, I had created my largest bankroll online, playing online poker, and that's when Black Friday hit. Um, Really didn't have anywhere to go, anything to do. Uh, Created a small group of friends. I had a friend of mine that uh, had actually allowed me to run his poker rooms for him that ended up being a book. And I used to go with him for pay and collects because he liked having me around. He thought of me as his own kid. And uh, he was really good to me. And um, I started watching every single week on who would win and who would lose. And it was almost always losers. But there was one guy that just absolutely crushed him every single week. And uh, I, I never had seen anything like it. And I just knew immediately that I wanted to be that guy. And uh, from there, I created this small group, just three friends of ours. We had no bankroll. I think uh, I had $5,000 to my name, and we were going to do college football because we heard that uh, NFL was too hard to beat, uh, college basketball was fixed, and we all loved football. (laughs) So that's how it all began. Um, It was just three of us in my house every single Saturday, and um, we were as square as anybody had ever seen. And we got extraordinarily lucky. We had two losing weeks out of the entire season. And, uh, I, you know, unbeknownst to us, it was just so easy. We, we found Robert Griffin and Baylor uh, overs couldn't miss that year. Uh, Missouri unders couldn't miss that year. And we, we did really, really well, but we had no idea that we were just on the right side of variance. I mean, I discovered it, you know, maybe a year later on my own, but uh, from there, they moved on. They, they all became extremely successful. And I just had the itch. I just never wanted to do anything with my life, but uh, make numbers and bet games. And uh, I didn't exactly know how to do it or how to go about it. I uh, flew out to Vegas. I met Dink and Gail. And um, me and Dink became really, really quick friends and uh, became betting partners for the next four or five years, every college football season. 
And uh, it just grew from there. And then I met uh, Aaron Renning and um, he taught me a little bit about NBA. And uh, the rest is just kind of history. Like I just, you know, I never found anything that I loved. Like I, I do sports betting. Uh, poker, I had a tilt issue. You know, I, I, I could build a $100,000 bankroll and lose it within a couple of months. Uh, sports betting was an endless rabbit hole where I could do research for just hours. I do research for hours and hours and hours. And I never get tired of it. It's just uh, it's something that I consistently find myself evolving and uh, constantly trying to find things. I think you can learn something in sports betting every single day of your life if you try to. And I love that. That's a pretty fascinating story to unpack. And and personally, I'm just learned a lot about you. I'm pretty close with Dink nowadays, and I actually had no idea that you guys had worked together. So that's that's something that I've I've learned. Um, I think it's interesting you talk about the the poker side of things, and I played professional poker for a year. I mean, I made some money, but it was not a kind of a lifestyle that I I personally wanted. But the tilt aspect, what you're talking about, is very real. Um, but I found that in the early stages of sports betting. I personally would kind of get into that tilt aspect as well, potentially with chasing games with um, the NFL specifically. I think the Sundays are very catered to, you know, your one o'clock starts, having a bad one o'clock, betting more on four o'clock, betting more on Sunday night football, potentially even chasing into Monday night football. Uh, And it's interesting to me that you seem to have never experienced that, uh, despite, I guess, at that time being, you know, a fairly novice better. Yeah, I um, I actually started doing uh, therapy and doing d- different kinds of work to get rid of the tilt within me. I've had, I mean, honest, honest to God, I've probably done everything wrong that you can do wrong as a gambler uh, throughout my life. Um, whether it's betting too big, betting too many games, uh, betting without an edge, uh, and, and playing poker for numerous days at a time, I've pretty much lived it all. But I, I knew very early on in my sports betting career around 2011, 2012, that I had to tackle what is that, whatever was causing me this kind of like, you know, these, these moments where I would just lose control and want to bet every single game on the board because one game didn't go my way. Um, I, I was very fortunate in the fact that I, I, I had a pretty big edge in the very beginning of college football because I was able to put in the work and I had a lot of people around me that were able to help me. Uh, you know, with what was good and what was bad. But I I tackled things because I was tired of going broke. So I started going to therapists and started doing yoga and getting into meditation and trying to kind of get rid of those demons per se. And um, for the most part, I I feel like, you know, if you bet 27 games in a week in college football, (laughs) you really can't bet any more games, you know, because you already have those games bet, you know, so that, that, that's one factor, but for the most part, I've, I've pretty much gotten rid of any chase or tilt that I have left in me at this point in my life. Okay, Eddie, let's talk betting here then. So you mentioned multiple times having, you know, an edge, uh, first got lucky betting college football. Um, so I just want to ask you, like, w- what edge do you think you had on, on college football back then? At first, obviously, right side of variance, but then you mentioned putting in the work and things like that. Like, what um, what edge did you have on college football? And then if you don't mind talking a little bit about, um, you know, if it still exists now, to what extent? And then, uh, you know, how kind of things evaporate over time? Because I know that's something we've uh, we've talked about before. Yeah, my, my first really big edge uh, that I realized rather quickly, I think it was probably, uh, Dink would probably be able to answer that better because I think he saw it in me from an outsider better. But uh, I, I think probably 2012 is when I really started to tackle the MAC and the Sun Belt Conference totals. And, and my edge was absolutely huge at that point. 
I didn't have a bankroll uh, to make that kind of thing stick. You know, I mean, I, I was still starting off and I started with such a small bankroll. It took me a long time to build uh, to where I am now. But uh, I think probably in the early stages, it was totals uh, and the smaller conferences were so huge. Those, those kind of things don't exist anymore, unfortunately. You still will find humongous edges from time to time. But I mean, there was a time there where I mean, the Bowling Green uh, situation in 2012, 2013, I, I remember there were times when, you know, the, the numbers would move nine points uh, throughout the week, you know, and if you were in early, you had so many options to do with that bet. But I mean, the, 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 the amount of EV that we had back then was, was exponentially higher than what you would discover nowadays. I can imagine. So, so when you say you had an edge and things like that, like obviously moving nine points, if you're getting that much CLV, you're going to earn very well throughout the year. What I wanted to ask was, was this kind of like uh, numbers based? Where, how, how are you kind of like capping the games with Dinky back then? You know, I know we've talked off air multiple times about how, you know, you don't necessarily use computers or programming and things like that. So what was it? What was it back then? So I still do the same thing. I, I start my college football season February 15th, and I put in four hours a day until June 1st, and then I put six hours, and nobody's going to outwork me um, in college football and possibly NBA. Um, I, I just love the work. So if I can find edges within the work, then I'm going to do it all day, every day. Um, and that was pretty early on. I mean, I, I realized that very, very early in my life, I didn't want a nine to five. And I didn't really want to, you know, confine to what my parents thought was best for me when they were completely miserable with what they did for a living. So I'm willing to do any kind of work if I can find, um, you know, what's going to profit for me in the long term. But I don't know how to use a computer. I have a learning disability. I'm pretty public about it. I have to write down everything that I read or else I don't absorb the information. Um, so, what you know, when people talk about models, it's, it's something that's completely obtuse to me because I have no understanding of the computer, really. I know how to use Excel because I, I paid somebody to teach me. But, um, you know, for the most part, I, I'm with notebooks every single day of my life. I, I keep uh, three notebooks on hand at every single possible time. And um, I track every single box score by hand throughout the entire college football season for all 130 teams. And I find edges by doing so. I, I find things that I don't think a lot of people see or possibly notice i mean and then i also watch um every single game i possibly can throughout a week if i don't watch a game live then i tape it and make sure i watch it this is so, sorry eddie this is such an interesting conversation because um we've talked about this ad nauseum in the past before and i personally model games uh, that's kind of my style of origination and, and you're doing your own origination it's just very different uh, and i think it goes to show that there's like no one correct way to do things. There, there's so many different processes that can arrive at the same end goal of making money. Um, but it, it sounds to me, you know, fr from my perspective that your edge is coming from a dedication to the craft. Like you're outworking people, you're looking at things that are not necessarily um, blatant or, or, or stand out right away and kind of just digging deep. And um, I, I think it just goes to show, you know, I, I've had this argument with several people before and, and I see it all the time where it's like, you know, my way is the best way of doing things. And I think that there are so many different ways to profit long-term in sports betting um, that people kind of just dismiss the handicapper that's quote unquote working hard or, or putting the work in. Um, and, and I think you're a real life example of someone who can actually win that way might be in the minority, but it's certainly possible. 
Yeah, I think that what works for one person isn't going to work for everybody. Um, and, you know, I would never tell somebody to go and write everything that they find, um, you know, in an Athlon magazine or something like that. That sounds crazy. It's just what works for me and it's how I have to do it. I mean, if it, if it was an easier way to do it, then I would do it. But I don't absorb information by just reading or taking a glance or, you know, if somebody sent me their model. I don't know, back in February, and they asked me for help with it. I ended up rewriting their entire model by hand, and it took me an entire, like, two weeks. But I was able to give them a proper, uh, you know, assessment of what I thought was wrong with their numbers, because they just, a lot of them didn't add up. And we, we were able to come to a conclusion of what they weren't doing well, um, as far as their power ratings and what they were missing. And, um, you know, it took me a long time, but I was happy to do the work for somebody. And I think I, I gained a, a lot from it. Um, you know, I wasn't necessarily in the state of mind of, you know, let's go ahead and tackle a two week project in the middle of February for something that probably isn't going to be, you know, with the transfer portal the way it is, uh, you know, probably wasn't going to be useful once football season ran around. But, uh, you know, I enjoy doing stuff like that. I just like working. Uh, I'm interested in, in the evolution of your process. And like we're in 2021 now, basically, how was, you know, Eddie Wall's 2011 compared to 2021 is is it a lot of the same process or have you had to adapt because of new data and information being becoming available uh basically take us through that of of you know how you started out as a better what that looked like and how much of that overlaps with what you're doing today yeah i don't think that any anything is probably the same as it was then i mean i remember my first notebook that I put together was just some notes um on players and uh bye weeks and you know, some angles that I thought were really cool sounding, but probably didn't make a lot of sense. And um, I remember actually sending it to Dink and a couple of other people and asking their opinion. And everybody was pretty much of the thought that I was going to get massacred. And I don't, I, you know, I, I, luckily, I don't think that I did. I think that I was able to figure things out rather quickly. But yeah, I mean, nowadays, uh, I'm much more detailed. And I look at stats that I don't even think were around back then. I mean, I don't think that we had a uh, team ranking site that uh, carried, you know, plays per second and snaps per second and snaps per player and stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, I've definitely evolved. I'm evolving constantly because there's more there's more things to look at than ever before. And it's only going to get crazier from here. I mean, with the uh, NIL coming into effect, I think we'll know more about players than we ever did before. I think we'll know about injuries, um, you know, much faster than we ever thought we could before. So, uh, you know, information is key and we're going to have a lot of it to work with. So you got to make use of it. How do you think that's going to affect you personally? I, I mean, I, I figure there's got to be an edge that you have in um, information and being quick to acquire information and being able to bet that out. Now, when that's all kind of coming to you know public fruition at, at the same time and everyone can access it at the same time, is, do you think that's going to hurt your EV? I don't think so. I think that I, I think that, uh, you know, I don't sleep a lot during football season. So if, if you can beat me to a number. <laughs> and, uh, good luck. You know, I, <laughs> I mean, if I, if I, you know, I, if, if there's something that comes about, um, I'm pretty much right there. Uh, normally, I mean, I, at the same time, I, at least I hope not. I mean, you know, I've been shocked by certain things in the past. I mean, last year, COVID news, you know, I thought I was really on top of it. And, you know, you'd go, you'd go to Don Best, the number would already be moving. So. Yep. Yeah, I get that. I mean, it, I guess it depends. You know, it's one thing to be able to bet the in injury information quickly, and it's another to be able to quantify it correctly as well. 
and potentially the market moves too much in some cases. So I, I mean, um, yeah, I, I get that from that perspective. So we've talked a lot about college football, um, which I know is your bread and butter. Uh, I'm going to bring up baseball, which I know that you've done as well. And I know that probably three weeks ago, you tweeted something along the lines of fuck baseball. I, I, I can't stand it anymore. And I, I don't know why I can't win. Um, how So like, talk me through how you got onto other sports for one. Did you always do multiple sports at the beginning or did you just have very successful college football and, and move into baseball at some point? And then I guess why, why baseball? Why did you gravitate towards that? So it, it's all, it's interesting. Baseball is like this, this great thing for me because what I do is I work on my notebooks while baseball is going on in the spring and the summer. And it's the perfect amount of distraction, you know, like, and I don't bet it for nearly the amount of money that I bet NBA totals or sides. And I don't bet it for even close to the amount of money that I bet for college football, but it still hurts when you lose. And I mean, you know, it's, it's, it definitely puts a, a dent in your bankroll when you lost, like I did this year. I lost 16 or 15 and a half units. Um, that's real money, you know. I mean, you could buy a car with that. Um, but at the same time, I mean, you know, the, the thing with baseball is I, everything that I do well in other sports doesn't apply to baseball. And it's a leak for me. Everybody I know points it out to me. And it, it's true. I have to face the fact that I just... I can't bet the sport any longer. It's, it's not, it's, you know, the, everything that I quantify coaches um, in college football, uh, assistant coaches in NBA, player rotations in NBA, injuries in college football, none of that matters in baseball whatsoever. And I just beat the bejesus out of the line, but I never feel comfortable in a baseball season. I never feel overly confident. And, uh, you know, I, I've had uh, four losing seasons in my entire life. Three of them were in baseball and one was in hockey when I was trying to make an impression. Uh, when I was very, very, very early. And it's a high variance sport that you have to bet every single day and you have to pay attention to a lot of factors. And honestly, I, I, I can say that I just, I, I half-ass it sometimes, you know, it's like I'm working on something else. I'm not looking at the wind reports in Detroit and it's nice outside. I'd rather be hiking most days. Um, so yeah, no, I mean, me and baseball have a love-hate relationship. I love watching it. I love going to games. Um, you know, I'm only a fan of one team in the out of everything in life, and that's the Red Sox. And I never bet against them. I mean, I have horrible biases and tendencies. It's it's just ridiculous that I even attempt it. I'm a Blue Jays fan, so I can't I can't get along with the Red Sox fan. Unfortunately, I think we're going to have to end this. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, one thing you said in there is, is sticking with me, and that's. You're crushing baseball lines. And when you say that, I assume you're talking about getting good closing line value, but you can't win. Um, a lot of people would say you're crazy for stopping baseball if you're getting good closing line value. What would you say to those people? Yeah, I mean, okay, so I have 16 cents the best of it over 450 plays, and I'm down 15 and a half units, right? So, yeah, it looks really great that I have this wonderful closing line value. But the market's been wrong so much this year that they're still betting Arizona on the road every other day, and they've won four games on the road or something like that all season. I don't trust that this market is efficient. I also don't trust the people that are moving the numbers, uh, you know, besides myself at open or whatever. I don't know. I don't, I don't know of anybody that can give me a key to how they beat baseball every year. I've yet to meet that person. I've met many of people that beat the NFL and tell me how they beat the NFL. It makes sense. I've met numerous people that can beat NBA, golf, whatever. I'm yet to meet the guy that goes to me and goes, yeah, I only bet baseball and this is how I win every year. It's yet to happen. So I don't, I don't have any faith in this market. 
I mean, from a personal experience, I, I kind of know exactly what you're talking about. I used to heavily bet baseball. Uh, I've been pretty open and on the record of, I think I lost my edge in baseball somewhere around two and a half, three years ago. Um, similar to you, where I was getting good closing line value, just not getting good results. I said, I'm putting so much work into this. Why am I going to do that? I had probably about a half dozen different people reach out to me about how great they are at baseball. And I ended up free rolling a bunch of them and they all lost at baseball as well. So I'm, I'm kind of with good closing line value. So I, I mean, it's a big market. A lot of pros attack it. There's huge limits on it. It's kind of contrary to everything that you would think about um, a market of that size. But for some reason or another, I don't know what it is. I think a lot of people are experiencing the exact same thing as you, Eddie. Right. And it's not only that, it's just, you know, if I'm going to put that kind of time into something, I, I, you know, it, money isn't everything, but I do have to earn it some point, you know, and it's like I could use <laughs> I could use that money in a lot of different ways. So I don't know. It's just a, yeah, it's, it's definitely a very frustrating thing at this point. And I, I think that I, I think I just have to call it a day when it comes to baseball. I've been uh, I've been sitting back and listening a lot here. I'm extremely fascinated by Eddie's process here. A lot of people ask me um, almost on a daily or weekly basis, like how to beat sports without a model. Um, and it seems like the answer to that is not necessarily that you don't need a model. It's that you, you maybe you don't need a mathematical model or a computer model. It's like it's, it's interesting to hear what Eddie's saying in terms of like you know, a little bit of injury news, a little bit of, um, you know, watching the games and, and analyzing different things, maybe a little bit of beating the market, a little bit of hitting openers, things like that. Um, but yeah, fascinating stuff. I think one other thing to add on baseball also in terms of how hard it is to beat, which kind of flies under the radar is baseball is typically the only sport that universally, uh, or at least nationally will deal a 10 cent line instead of a 20 cent line as well. So that just speaks to how hard it actually is when, you know, if you're shopping around from book to book, let's say you're in a you know regulated state like Jersey, um, you could almost at all times be betting into like a one to two cent hold uh, on baseball, and it's still very very hard to beat. Um, so yeah, it's it's crazy. Uh, I'm not sure what to say about that closing line value, but it, it seems like you're on the right track. But I mean, yeah, not not too many people beating baseball these days. It's a, a difficult thing to do. Yeah. I don't, right. I, don't, I, don't, I don't even know what to add to it. It's just, yeah. it's a matter of frustration at this point. Um, so four losing seasons in your lifetime, three of them baseball. Talk, talk us through the psychology of dealing with something like that. I mean, I, I've personally gone through it before. I know that you had commented on a thread that Rufus had posted this week about dealing with losing in sports betting. And, and I joined him on Bet the Process last night to talk about that a little bit. But it seems to have really hit home with you just in general. Um, I, I don't have your exact tweet, but it was something about you'd never make a negative comment about Rufus again after hearing him. Um, so, so what was it specifically, uh, about that, his commentary around, you know, being real with yourself, losing at sports betting that, you know, hit home with you? Well, I, I totally, I, I totally got a new, new, uh, aspect of Rufus, you know, um, he seems like a, a guy that's, you know, He's pretty sure of himself, which is really great to have. You know, you need confidence in this game for sure. Um, but it, it can come across as crass sometimes. But, uh, you know, I agreed with the fact that, you know, when you go through a downswing, it's never about the money. Um, it's about the time that you spent. It's about all the things that you sacrificed. Um, you know, I have a, a wonderful girlfriend in my life. I have a great dog. I have good friends. 
And, you know, and instead you spent maybe 150, 200 hours trying to tackle something. And in, in the end, you were defeated by it. And uh, it's a deflating system, but you have to be able to pick yourself up. Um, you can never get comfortable with losing. Um, you know, anybody that's in gambling has met the guy that's comfortable with losing. You never want to be that guy. And, uh, you know, just because you lost for one season doesn't doesn't make you a loser lifetime or anything like that. But it's easy to get in that mindset. It's very easy to get comfortable within the thought process of this is just the way it is. And uh, I'll never accept that. That's just not not something I'm comfortable with. But, you know, I don't care who you are and how long you've been doing this and how much money you've made, how much success you've made. When you go through a really bad downswing, you question everything. And, uh, you know, whether you've lost your edge, you know, whether you're making the right choices and, uh, you know, it, it can be hard to overcome. But uh, lucky for me, I, I really have a pretty good support system. And I've been doing this long enough that I, you know, I know where my edges lay and where my edges don't lay. And, uh, you know, with the baseball season, the way it went, I think I knew pretty early on that it could get really rough. And uh, it took me three months before I finally realized this isn't going to get better. And now I'm just playing to get even. And if you're a poker player, the worst place you can ever be is at a table where you're just trying to get even. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you got to call it yeah. quits at some point. But uh, yeah, no, I just it really resonated with me with everything that he said. You know, it, it's never about the money. I mean, you can always make money back. You can't get time back. And uh, that's the hard part of a losing season. Eddie, I think uh, one thing that's always helped me with exactly what you're talking about and what Roof has talked about in his thread was actually, you know, not being alone in the whole process. So having a, you know, a kind of a betting partner, somebody else who is sharing in the wins, sharing in the risk and sharing in the whole, the swing of things. So when you're having a really bad day and you're by yourself and you have no one to talk to about it and it's a, a really bad stretch, it's a different mental space than when you have somebody else by your side who you can kind of recap and say, look, look, this is what we're doing wrong. Here's what we need to improve. This is what's happening. And like, it's going to be okay. Uh, you mentioned working with Dinky um, in the past, but I think uh, from, from what I hear now, is it true that you, you work primarily alone? I just want to ask, like, how has that been? Um, do you notice any benefits or drawbacks? Obviously working alone, you're getting a, more of a lion's share of the profit. Um, but putting in a lot more of the work. So can you talk a little bit about that and how that's uh, had an impact on you? Yeah, I always have a partner in everything that I do, but I don't have financial partners. I always have one or two people that I could bounce ideas off of. Um, you know, I had Waz when, I was, when we were together as a group, me, Waz, and Aaron when we were a group. And, you know, if there was a downswing with one of us, then we would kind of talk to each other about what we were doing poorly. Um, you know, we never really experienced too many of them because um, we were on a really good run there for a few years. But there were times where we had to talk to one another, um, you know, and then I talked to Ed from Raz uh, quite often. We're pretty close. And then, of course, I called Dink. Uh, we talk at least once or twice a week. And, uh, you know, he's a man of much wisdom. So if I ever need anything, I can go there. Frank B., uh, me and him are partners on college football props for the national championship game every year. We talk quite often. I just don't like sharing accounts with people. That's not something I'm comfortable with. I worked really hard for my accounts and I have good working relationships with everybody I do business with. So, you know, if it's going to be betting partners and we're sharing ideas, that's one thing. But the account thing is something I'm not comfortable with. And I like to keep my money separate from others. That's all. Do you handle the the betting uh, yourself as well? Because a lot of originators will send their plays off to a mover. That's specifically what I do because I just don't want to handle the day-to-day -day operation. So are you doing the whole thing where, you know, you're coming up with your number or your bet on the game and then betting it out yourself? 
Yeah, correct. 100% of the time do I bet on the game myself. Now, I do have an assistant that will run to the casino for me if I need to. Um, but I try not to, to bother her other than in, in, base, in basketball season where we have to get down so early in the morning. But I like to do everything myself. Um, I like to know that I've got the number. I've got everything in front of me. I'm the one that hits submit. I'm ultimately responsible for everything. And I work hard on my numbers. I like to take the brunt of all the responsibility. I think that's very fair and uh, respectable as well. Uh, so two things you touched on. One is just now actually betting early in the morning for things like basketball. But also uh, I want to touch on something you mentioned earlier was in during college football, it's going to be very hard to beat you to a number, right? You mentioned nobody beats you to a number. And if you can, well, you know, kudos to you. So I wanted to ask about betting early, you know, call it openers or betting after the limits or after circles are off. Um, what's your stance on that? And, and, you know, how does that fit into your whole uh, betting system right now? I mean, it's a complicated answer because I'm really, I'm really at a place where my bankroll is big enough to where I don't need to just hit openers and I don't just hit openers anymore. Um, but at the same time, if I find a number and it's there, I've got to take it. I mean, it's just natural instinct for me. I, I, I have to be able to fire on that number. Now, if I need to wait for limits to go up, then I'm more than willing to do so. And last season, I would probably say only 25%, maybe even less was on openers because I was very, very cognizant of the fact that I had to get down, you know, more money. Um, but I have enough outs to where if I need to get down on a Sunday night per se on what some people would consider openers, it's a couple hours after open, um, then I can get down my full unit size if I need to. Um, you don't have to answer this, Eddie, but I'm, I'm just curious whether or not um, you consider any market manipulation. I mean, you're, you're a pretty respected guy. Um, you could bet into openers and move the market in one direction and possibly get down a little bit more later on. I know some people don't like the ethics of that. I know some people, they just don't want to do that because it's a hassle in general. Um, but is, is that something that is currently something that you consider or, or do? No, I, I, of course I do it. I think everybody does. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I, you'd be, I'm not going to lie to anybody. I mean, of course, you know, I mean, there are times, there were times last year, especially with COVID the way it was, um, where the number was just really, really iffy. And if I felt like, you know, I can find out more information throughout the night, then why not move this number now? And, you know, if I like the side that I moved it to after reading a little bit more about the injury reports and stuff like that, then I already have a decent bet down. But 99% of the time, I knew that I was going to have to move it the other way first thing in the morning. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think that's common practice. I'm, I'm glad you admitted it. You seem to be a pretty honest and transparent guy. Um, you're based in Denver, correct? All right. So Colorado's seen a lot of movement in terms of regulation um, over the past year or so. I'm curious how that's affected you. I mean, obviously, you have more betting options available to you now other than PPH and offshore uh, but have you noticed any sort of difference um, in your day-to-day -day with the regulatory market now? So I guess it was this time last year where I was like, gung-ho, man. I was not going to have to use offshore anymore. We had 20 outs, you know, and I was just going to be all legal. And I was going to finally, you know, be able to like claim a lot of income. And it was just going to be all roses. So me and a couple of friends and Aaron Renning, we all went up to all the casinos and opened accounts. And I opened seven accounts. I deposited a large sum of money at all seven. And this is during baseball season, during the abbreviated season. And uh, by the third week of September, I had two outs left. 
And <laughs> it, it really hurt. It really like it really hurt me. It kind of devastated me, honestly, because this is the only game I know of where they say, hey, you want to play a game? And you say, yeah. And they say, OK, the object is to win the game. And then three weeks later, they go, OK, you know what? You won. And we were just kidding. You're not allowed to play this game anymore. And it just sucks. Like, you know, and it's just like right back to offshore PPH games, you know, and there are good books in Colorado. I don't want to discount all of them, but it's just crazy to me that we have all these books with, you know, they spend millions of dollars on billboards. They have radio channels specifically geared towards betters, all sponsored by these humongous sports books. You can't watch a game without 25 commercials from these books and they won't let you bet $500. There isn't a bookmaker in the world that shouldn't be able to you know, let somebody bet $500 as much as they want, as often as they want. And uh, it just sucks. That, that's all I can say about it, really. But, uh, you know, if you really are trying, I imagine you can stay in action for a long time with these guys. Have you bet small enough? And uh, I don't know, I guess if you lose, you know, constantly, I, I don't know how it works. But yeah, it was it was kind of defeating. So I'm a little I'm a little troubled by what I found. But, uh, you know, Every year, I'm going to give a couple new outs a try and see what happens. Yeah, I think it's obviously very frustrating. Uh, I, I don't, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in Canada. We don't have regulated or legal sports betting yet. So I'm mostly betting offshore. And you do experience the same uh, issues offshore, obviously. But you at least have some outs where you're not going to get limited that are fairly consistent, which is nice. Um, but the challenge I, I see in the U.S. is that... Um, <clears throat> I mean, these companies really don't, you know, they're bringing a lot of revenue and a lot of players with these practices in place already. Um, and when essentially all of the regulated sports books are doing this, it, it, it becomes a situation where they really don't have to do anything different and they're still going to make a hefty profit because there are so many recreational and casual bettors in the space that don't know any different. So, I'm just curious, like, do you see a solution in place? Like, if you were an operator in Colorado or something like that, would you be running a, a sports book in the same manner that other sports books are running right now? I think that there can be a balance. I mean, why, you know, just make it fair. Just say, you know, we don't want to take more than $1,000 per bet or 2000 whatever, set the limit, um, you know, and... And at the same time, you know, you, you can offer whatever you want to offer. But if you mean to tell me that you're going to ban people over a half, you know, a half point of a college football total uh, two days before the game's played. I mean, what are we doing at that point? These are billion dollar companies, for God's sakes. You, you just set the limits for everybody across the board. You say, bet, you know, whatever you want. This is what we'll take. This is what we don't take. And uh, let the chips fall where, where they may be. I don't see how that's a bad practice. But, I mean, they're just so scared of losing any kind of revenue, which doesn't make any sense. I mean, imagine if they would have taken my baseball action this year. I'd look like a humongous fish, you know? I mean, not every sharp is, is good at everything that he does. You know, there's money to be made through everybody. Um, I, I just don't understand their business model at all. It doesn't make any sense to me. If you can spend $2 billion on marketing, but you're limiting people that bet, you know, $700 on an NFL game or college basketball game. Where are we at at this rate? Yeah, I, I get that side of things. If I was playing devil's advocate, I would say if, if I was booking your baseball this season, you would look like a humongous fish. And then we get to college football season and you take me to the cleaners 
Um, so, so there is that side of things as well. I mean, you, I, I get both sides of the argument. I was, I'm just curious as, as to, um, as to your take and, and I get where you stand on that as, as being a professional sports better wanting to, to have more outs and be able to place a bet. And I, I think there is a fairness and ethics, um, component to it as well. But, um, yeah, I'm always caught in the middle because, you know, I've consulted for sports books in the past. I bet for a living, I, I, I can see both sides of the argument. And I think that there's probably room in market for a happy medium, a sports book that doesn't necessarily have to take, you know, a $50,000 bet, but can at least give you a, a couple thousand on a game. And, you know, they still make money off of their recreational player base. And you probably would make money off of uh, referrals and word of mouth from the professional better who's willing to, to say that this is a good sports book and they pay out type of thing. Yeah. So Eddie, let's talk about, uh, touting for a second, if you don't mind. So you mentioned, uh, being kind of close friends, talking with Ed from RAS every once in a while. And, and Ed, um, sells his picks or information. I know you have a history with that as well. So did you want to touch upon that for a second? And then kind of, if you don't mind, just like what made you to decide to stop, you know, selling picks or information? Yeah. So, um, back in 2016, Eric was me, and Aaron Renning started Better IQ. And it was going to be an information-based site. I wrote articles. If you go back, there are all kinds of articles on getting ready, you know, preparation for college football season. Aaron wrote articles on uh, NBA and how to handicap NBA. Andrew Lang did a podcast on baseball. And it was just going to be an information-based site. You know, we had a parlay calculator. We had InfoStream that gave you information on every single game so you can handicap it yourself. And nobody was interested. All we got emails about is how can we get your plays? How can we get your plays? So eventually we just said the hell with it. We'll just sell plays. And we, I'd never put more effort forth uh, on making sure that we put out a transparent and good product. And I can tell you honestly that I, I know that Aaron's the same way, but I would bet 25, 30 college football games in a day, I mean, in a week. And the only games I cared about were my nine releases during that time. Cause I was so worried about, the, the client and the customer, you know, I mean, I really cared about him. I'd answer every DM email and it was like, I just didn't want to be compared to the Vegas Daves of the world or whatever. And I knew that there was a way that we could, you know, do this. So that way everybody could make money. I never had a losing season. Nobody ever lost money. Everybody had tremendous closing line value. Unfortunately, what came with that is after about the second or third year of me really having great football seasons, we got a very, very sharp clientele. And pretty soon the recreational better could not get our number any longer. It was impossible. Um, we'd release at nine o'clock in the morning. The number would move two and a half to three points instantly um, across the board. And it got to the point where we made a deal where we would just refund anybody that called us that couldn't get the number. The only people that didn't call us were just guys that were nice enough to, you know, just say, we'll just ride it out, I guess. Um, so that was the first thing that happened. Then the second thing that happened is me and Aaron and Waz were betters first and the pandemic hit. Um, and it became very clear to us, especially those guys that they're just betting a ton of money and they really didn't want to deal with the aspect of having to try and do a tout service as well. And I, you know, I moved the market, then you release a number, it moves the market pretty soon. There's probably more value on the other side. Mm-hmm. And we, we realized this uh, going into last year when we were discussing it. And it just didn't make sense for any of us to continue to keep touting. We really didn't, you know, we never made a lot of money touting anyway. Um, 
you know, and, and you have, you have to put out a lot of fires um, when you're running a business. And do I really want to answer, you know, DMs all day long about whether or not, you know, they, they still bet the game at three when we released it at two and a half, you know, (laughs) you know, so yeah, it just became, you know, the, 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 the squeeze wasn't worth the juice anymore. Um, But I really enjoyed it, but it did add a, a humongous amount of pressure and anybody that really cares about how, their clients do will tell you that, you know, there are sleepless nights when you lose other people's money. I don't care. You know, I mean, unless you're a sociopath, um, you know, there's not a worse feeling in the world than losing a humongous sum of money and then realizing that other people might've lost and also a humongous sum of money based off of the information that you gave them. So, you know, there's definitely stress that goes along with that job. It's a thankless job too. I mean, you could go win, humongous units every single week for six weeks the one week that you lose you're going to get emails you're going to get negative stuff on twitter it's just not worth it so that's what happened uh i think the obvious follow-up question and why um totes in general will get a bad rap and people will criticize is if you're a professional sports better and you're making a bunch of money why do you have to tout on the side so i mean that's the question for you eddie is is sort of uh, why you felt the need to do it, what your motivations were at that time. A, a lot of what you're saying right now literally completely mirrors my one-year experience when I was running predictionmachine.com. Um, and I had my own personal motivations, but I, I'm interested to hear what yours were. I think that we all, I think us three or four of us guys really wanted better IQ to really take off and do some great things because we had worked, Eric especially had worked so hard on that site and making sure that you know, we had so many resources available to everybody and we really believed in it. Um, so, you know, there was no way for us to keep the lights on and keep the company going without it. Um, me personally, I, I kind of wanted to prove something at the time, I think, you know, I mean, to be honest with you, I, I really felt like, and that maybe that's just ego or whatever. I'm, I guess I'm guilty of that. But at the time, I, I just felt like I was putting in an insane amount of work and nobody really knew who I was. And I kind of, you know, I kind of wanted that challenge. I, I lived for that challenge. You know, I think that the best way that you can get better at sports is to try and make an impression on people that you feel are better than you. And that's probably crazy, but I really don't think that I would be the sports better I was if I hadn't met Dink when he was having a tremendous amount of success. I wanted to emulate that. And then you meet, you know, somebody like Frank B. And you meet somebody like Waz and Aaron running and these guys just, you know, they make tremendous amounts of money. They don't make wrong decisions. They beat the closing line and you want a piece of that. And then once I started experiencing that, I wanted, you know, I wanted my name to be out there a little bit probably. So I was probably a little bit of an egomaniac at that point, but uh, yeah, not interested now. Yeah. I think that's at least a, a fair and honest answer. And I completely get that because on a personal level, and I don't want to make this about me, but I had, for years, people calling me a fraud. Um, and, and that was part of my motivation in making my place public. And I obviously wanted to earn off of that as well. But, um, I think that kind of elevated my, in a weird way, touting kind of elevated my status as a better, because at least my stuff was public and people were saying, well, this guy actually does win. And it, it really shed a lot of the criticism or, or took a lot of the criticism away from me. Right. Yeah. And I mean, it adds a challenge. Like, you know, like you, you know, if you're not motivated uh, by, you know, just normal everyday things, let's face it, you are going to make a, you know, if you're winning for a long time, you are going to make enough money to where your only challenge becomes getting paid and getting down. 
And you have to find different ways to motivate you. And, and that was one of them for all of us, I think, at the time. So I don't know. And I don't think. Got, that, oh, sorry. Oh, it's OK. I don't think that any I don't think I definitely know that Aaron running and would never tout again at this point. But uh, I think that that was a big thing for all of us at the time. So I've got more of a uh, kind of hypothetical recreational question for you here. Um, you obviously watch a ton of college football. Um, a lot of people I know, a lot of friends, a lot of college kids, you know, they're watching every game. Uh, they're trying to make money betting, but they're consistently losing, right? And they're willing to put in the work, like you mentioned, which I know is 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 massive in, in, in any industry, but, you know, especially in sports betting. So I, I wanted to ask you kind of if you could share some advice for, you know, the recreational person who is, let's say, watching college football every single Saturday from morning to night, watching, you know, maybe one conference every single game and just trying to read the market. What can they look for? And again, I don't want you to give away any of your edge or anything like that, but what can they look for while watching TV uh, that could potentially give them an edge? Um, or, or, or is there anything? No, no, that's a great question. I have more than just one answer to this question. So first of all, they should probably not just watch one conference, but they should probably study the coaches of that conference before anything else. Um, you know, very, very, there's not much hidden value in college football at this point of the data era, but coaches still make up the make up what you're going to be betting on, or at least for me, constantly. Um, if you find new coaches and you can figure out what their background is and what they excel at, then you can probably figure out why they got hired and what they're going to be working on. There's nobody that fires a guy that can't score and brings in an offensive coordinator from a big school so that way they can continue to not score. So you can use that in a totals approach. The second thing that I think is really important is you need to be very cognizant of not only injuries, but depth. So when you're watching a football game and you see a guy get injured, you want to make note of that. You want to see how many snaps the guy behind him has had in his career and whether or not he's up to snuff. Even if it's an offensive lineman that you may think is not a big deal, if the guy behind him is a true freshman who's never played in a game before, that next week, that guy's probably going to get really, really badly destroyed. So you want to make like sure you're looking at things from what you can use in the future, not what you can be betting on at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good answer. Uh, I'm curious too with college football. I mean, I think there's a lot of angles that are developed in sports over time uh, that they tend to to work for several years, and then all of a sudden the market catches up to them and they no longer work. And NBA zigzag theory comes to mind uh, as one of them. Uh, college football for me, and I'm I'm not a huge college football better, but it's uh, returning starters early on in the year. And teams that are bringing back a lot of players from the year before. I'm wondering if there, uh, if that's still something that exists, or is it something now that's gone to public light where it's just got to be dismissed? Well, this year everybody has a, like almost 100% returning starters because the seniors are allowed to come back because of COVID. Right. So returning production is somewhere I think in the 78 percentile this year, which would be normally like a top five or ten team in returning production. Um, but to answer your question. It really has never made a difference whether or not you have returning starters. It's about quality of returning starters. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't I don't think that you can find an edge with just using returning starter uh, qualities anymore. You used to like five or six years ago. But I think that everybody's kind of caught on to the fact that like just because you have 10 returning starters on the 112th worst defense coming back, the most they can leap to is like the 100th worst, you know, <laughs> they're still going to be bad. So. 
quality returning production is probably better than returning starter production. Yeah, I completely get that. As someone who bets the NFL, I hear stuff all the time like, well, they're returning their five starters on the offensive line. It's like, well, great. Their offensive line stunk last year. Like, what's the point of returning a bunch of bad players, right? Right, right, right. All right, Eddie, this has been a really good conversation. I'm glad that we could uh, we could have you on here. We we close with the same question. Well, every we got to ask him about Eddie drink or milkshake first. Yes, so where does I, this come from? Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Right. So I've, I've told this story a bunch of times, I think, but if you've never heard it before, it's rather embarrassing. Um, so 2007, I'm out in LA. I'm going broke, okay? Like I'm absolutely on a journey to just go bust. I have about a $30,000 bankroll. I'm playing in a 61-20 limit game, which if you know anything about poker and bankrolls, I'm playing way above my bankroll. And I'm playing every single night. And one night I get into a very large pot with an older Asian businessman who really doesn't like me. And I end up running him down and he takes it super personal. And the very next night I do it again. And it's not like I'm doing this on purpose. I'm just playing my hand, you know, but he's taking it crazy personal. So a gentleman next to me orders at Commerce, you can order whatever you want off the menu and it's comped. He orders this humongous bowl of ice cream and it's so delicious looking. And I go, oh my God, that looks so good. And he's like, got like, you know, like Hershey syrup on it. It's ridiculous. He goes, why don't you get one? I said, no, I'm lactose intolerant severely. If I eat dairy, I'll throw up almost immediately. The Asian man goes, oh, you, you, you want, you want the ice cream? I said, no, I can't have it. And he's trying to goad me and he goes, I give you a thousand dollar. You drink, uh, you drink milkshake or eat that Sunday. And I was like, what? And he goes, I give you a thousand dollars. He wants to see me get sick. Right. And I'm like, no, no, I'm not. You know, that's crazy. You don't understand. Like I'll get really, really sick. He goes, 1000, 1000. I said, okay, whatever. So the night progresses and I'm losing and losing. And I get down to like $2,500 left in my stack. And I say to him, are you serious? And he goes, yeah. And I said, okay. So I had learned this trick that if you drink Coca-Cola very fastly, it will sit in your stomach and kind of cause like a bubble. So you won't get sick immediately. So uh, I say to him, you know, I'm going to, what, what are the terms? I just have to drink it. And he goes, no, no, you have to drink it and you cannot throw up. And I said, for how long? I say, no, I'm going to throw up. And he goes, one hour. And it's like, are you kidding me, man? Like, this is crazy. So 15 minutes, 20 minutes goes by, you know, I haven't won any hands. I don't think I played any hands. Finally, I said, okay. So I order the milkshake thinking it's going to be much smaller than this humongous Sunday. It turns out this milkshake is just like humongous, right? It's just like one of those <laughs> big ones, right? So, I mean, like, it's just ridiculous. So I drink the, co- the Coca-Cola as fast as I can, you know, and then I start, I start spooning the milkshake, trying to just shovel it down as fast as possible. And uh, I get it down. I sit out. I'm literally just so sick. I'm just thinking, please don't throw up. And by the way, I have to pay a thousand dollars if I if I do throw up. We made a bet at this point. It's not even a free roll. This is just stupid gambling. So the hour comes up. I get the thousand dollar chip. I don't even cash out. I go to my car. I get on the highway. I throw up. I drive straight to urgent care at like eight o'clock at night um, in Anaheim of all places. And I was sick for three days. And every time I walked in the commerce for like the next two weeks, everybody would say milkshake, milkshake. So I changed all my screen names to drink your milkshake. He always said, drink milkshake, drink milkshake. You know, so that's how it came about. I didn't know about the movie reference until like 
two, three years later. And, you know, that's... and I started telling people that that's where it was from because I was so ashamed of it because it was such a degenerate story, you know. I, w- I was going to say this is one of the most, I hadn't heard this before. This is definitely one of the most degenerate stories I've ever heard. I heard of one guy eating a live goldfish for a, uh, uh, for for a thousand bucks as well, and he ended up getting a tape a tapeworm out of it. So very like you know similar story to you, where it was like a a horrible week for him afterwards. But uh, yeah, I always thought it was a reference to to There Will Be Blood with Daniel Day Lewis because I I love that movie and it's got the milkshake reference. That's, that's what I always thought it was. I I just changed my screen names at the time because I was like I don't ever want to be that kind of guy ever again. You know, where I'm like close to going broke and doing desperate things. You know. But then I kind of embraced it, so I've just kept it. Yeah, for those that don't know, we, we're this came up because uh, Eddie's Twitter handle is at walls underscore Edward, but his Twitter name is Eddie Drink Your Milkshake, spelt without the vowels. Why without the vowels? Because that's all that would fit on Full Tilt Poker. Oh, got it. By the way, by the way, this profile is amazing. Like plus EV better except baseball. Dot dot dot. I'm awful at baseball. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Um, give Eddie a follow on Twitter um, at walls underscore Edward. So we'll give you our final closing question now. And um, hopefully at some point in time, we can kind of amalgamate these into one and turn it into like a half hour podcast of its own. But uh, if you could go back in time, Eddie, maybe five years or so, talk to a previous version of yourself. What piece of uh, advice would you give to yourself? Oh, man. Uh, I think it'd probably be try not to get rich fast. You know, I've always had a problem. I, I struggled up until about four or five years ago with really, really betting big. And I was never comfortable. I have an anxiety disorder. And I've always kind of in the back of my mind thought it was because I used to place these really, really large wagers. And even if you have an edge, if you don't feel comfortable doing something, then don't do it because it's it's just never worth it. So I think that would probably be it for me. I just, I've always had a lot of gamble in me. And I think probably four or five years ago, there were times where I would have 25% of my bankroll on one game, um, you know, a few times a year. So uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, even, even though I came out ahead on those instances, it just definitely wasn't worth it to me. So just be comfortable with who I am, you know. I, uh, I lied to you. I said that was going to be the last question, but I just want to pick up on something there because um, you've mentioned it a couple of times with um, uh, having an anxiety disorder. And I understand that that's, you know, clinical um, disorder that you have, but I know that there's a lot of sports betters that deal with anxiety in general. Um, and you talked very early on in this podcast about, uh, being better with it now. And you, you know, you've done a lot of things to improve that just in general. I'm just curious if you wouldn't mind sharing, um, some of the techniques that you have, um, whether, you know, you're doing meditating or, or whatever you do that helps you deal with the stress of being a sports better. You know, I have like a really, really bad anxiety attack where, it's like, you know, you can't breathe and you can't think and I uh, feel like the whole world's coming on you maybe twice a year. But I can honestly say it was about 12 times a year, three or four years ago, at least once a month. Um, you know, you just have to remember to breathe and uh, you have to be able to, like, talk to people when you feel like things are going, you know, getting out of hand in your life or maybe you're overwhelmed. Um, you know, I, I tell this to everybody, but I'll just say it here because you probably have a bigger audience. If you're dealing with anxiety as a sports better and you want to talk to somebody, you can always DM me. Um, I check my DMs every night and I've talked to numerous people. Um, you know, we, we can lean on each other. It's no problem. And uh, it's always a safe place. So you can always feel free to DM me. But, you know, I think the biggest thing 
especially within male egos is that we're kind of scared to be vulnerable. And it took me a long time to overcome that. And, uh, you know, I'm really lucky in the fact that I have a really supportive girlfriend, mom, really great friends. Um, so when it gets too much, you just have to be real with yourself and reach out to others. That's my best advice. That's great advice. Um, really appreciate the honesty. Um, and it's really been a pleasure talking to you, Eddie, and at least putting a face to the name because we've had a lot of online interactions before, but um, never actually spoken. So it's been great having you on and um, wish you all the best in this upcoming college football season. And if you ever decide that you're going to get back in the MLB market, I hope that uh, you can recoup some of the funds that you lost this year, but uh, really appreciate you taking the time to join us. All right. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. We'll see everybody next week. Uh, thanks, Eddie. Uh, take care, everyone.